Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me for this episode, finally, is my good friend and co-host, back from the dead, Scott Hemingway. Say hello, resurrected and possibly zombified Scott. It's alive. It is alive. It's alive. Oh, thank God. Yeah, I'm back. (laughs) Yeah. I'm back. And and well-rested. There you go. Finally. We'll talk more maybe later about what you've been doing. Yeah. Yeah. I've been herding sheep. My part-time job. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadians chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Jump, jump. Nom, nom. This is episode seventy-five. Woo! That's uh, that's that's uh, three quarters of the way to a hundred. Weird. I, like last one was seventy-one, Mike. What? Um, uh, I, I must have slept for a few weeks. Cinderella. You not Cinderella. You Rip Van Winkle. Yes, I, I Rip Van Winkled. Only a couple of more weeks before we are at CrimeCon in New Orleans. Looks like there's only single-day tickets left, so you can't use the code anymore. Boo! But anyway, we are super excited to get there. Uh, we can't wait to meet some of you folks. Oh my god, I am like legit like uh, good anxiety. Like I'm, I'm, I get wake up and I'm like, oh fuck, this is gonna be fun. So many more sleeps. Yeah, not very many. No, no, it's I, like, oh man, this is gonna be fun, Mike. Do you have your passport up to date? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. I think I do too. You think? Yeah, I'm pretty sure I do. <laughs> I got like a 10-year passport in 2015, and then I oh, promptly sure. gained 30 pounds, so they always look at me <laughs> weird when I go across the border. Yeah, no, I had to, I had to update it because a couple of years back, I, uh, well, like, yeah, two years ago or so, planned to do a trip to Seattle with some friends, and like two days before, I'm like, oops! And so I like, had to do that mad scramble and pay the extra to get it done quickly, and yeah. There you go. So it's good. On with the show. This is our third away game, and I think our nerdiest episode yet. Yeah, I love this. I love this case or incident. Uh, for this slot, last December, I had planned another story from the region, the disaster at Chernobyl nuclear power oh, plant in God. Ukraine. And at the time, that was under Soviet rule. I had no idea there would be a mini series and a full podcast dedicated to that <laughs> show at this time. So there are other podcasts talking about Chernobyl right now, too. So. You know what? I hear the series is great. It is. It's excellent. I'm, yeah? I'm all three episodes in, and it's it's. Is it fantastic. just? Is it a three-episoder? Uh, no, no, no. It's like six or seven. Oh, sweet. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm going to have to check that out. Last week, I also did an interview with Alan R. Warren. Uh, I sat in on his interview with Adam Higginbotham, who wrote the new bestseller, Midnight in Chernobyl. Oh, cool. And I, I've been listening to that on Audible, so I'm kind of Chernobyled out. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> 
Chernobylified. I'm Chernobylified, and I'm sure others are too. So we'll talk about that story when the hype has died down. Yeah, I, I uh, worked in a warehouse once with a guy who uh, lived very close to Chernobyl when it happened, and uh, he was bald, and he used to always joke, it's Chernobyl. This Chernobyl making me bald. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You need to watch the show. Yeah. It's actually scary. I, I bet, yeah. It's very scary. Yeah, yeah, that whole incident was terrifying. This story, though, takes us to Russia itself, more specifically, Central Siberia, and before the Soviet era. Man, it, there isn't much more desolation than Siberia. No. Like, that's like... We send you to Siberia. No, nobody, I don't think I've ever heard the words ever. You know what? I'd love to go check out Siberia. And no, 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 I don't think, I don't think, I don't think those words have ever been uttered. Hey, what you want to do this, uh, this, uh, year for vacation? Siberia. Mm, Siberia? Nope. No. Nope. Not uttered. This is the story of the Tunguska event. Still today, Siberia is one of the most desolate and remote places on Earth. After the Soviets came to power, this inhospitable landscape became home to the infamous labor camps of the Soviet Gulag system. At the time of the event, in the early 1900s, the area had a tiny, spread-out population. Today, it is still the last place in the world many people would make their home. On the sunny morning of June 30, 1908, there was something in the sky. Stunned Siberian villages across an area of over 1,500 square kilometers looked up. They saw a massive blue-green fireball rumbling across the cloudless sky in a northwest direction. Some said the thing was bright as the midday sun, and others said it was shaped like a pipe or a tube. Following the fireball was a bright column of blue light that resembled a spear. A trail of thick gray smoke stretched over a thousand kilometers behind it. After a few minutes, without warning there was a flash. It sounded like many artillery blasts, and then came a roaring firestorm. Near the Tunguska River, the massive fireball had exploded. It burst between 5 and 10 kilometers above the earth and left no crater. There have been larger events caused by meteorites or comet strikes, but this particular event still to this day is the largest in recorded history. The shockwave leveled more than 2,000 square kilometers of Siberian forest. It knocked trees over like matchsticks and set them ablaze in the ensuing firestorm. Barometers as far away as England recorded the shockwave. All the animals in the immediate area died in an instant. There are varying reports that one or two human beings died in the blast. One of the fatalities was said to have been a reindeer herder 30 kilometers from the epicenter. He'd been asleep in his tent within the blast radius. The explosion picked him up and threw him against a tree. He later died from his injuries. Many of the herder's reindeer died as well. People as far as 70 kilometers away in a town called Vanavera reported feeling the shockwave. They felt both its pressure and its heat. People 700 kilometers away saw the flash and light show of the initial event in the sky. People as far away as 1200 kilometers reported sounds like thunderclaps or gunshots. The seismic waves raced across the globe. Scientists in Washington, D.C. were able to measure the event, equal to a 5.0 earthquake. Siberians reported the ground behaving like ripples in the water on a pond. A massive electrical storm raged at the site of the event for four hours after the explosion. This phenomena can also take place after airburst tests of nuclear weapons. The blast threw clouds of debris and dust high into the atmosphere. This caused noctilucent clouds across Asia and Europe for the next few evenings. This is a rare type of cloud formation called bright nights by some. It is caused by ice crystals in the upper atmosphere. They are visible only when illuminated by sunlight from below the horizon. Only while the lower layers of the atmosphere are in Earth's shadow. The photos I've seen are eerie. People across Europe and parts of Asia said you could read a book at night without any other light source. 
As far away as Sweden, people were able to capture photographs of the landscape at night. This meteorological phenomenon also occurs after volcanic eruptions. There have been human-caused instances of this too, sometimes after launches of the space shuttle and the SpaceX rockets. There was a notable level of radiation measured at the site many years later. The actual physical makeup of the fireball is still undetermined almost 111 years later. It left little evidence of itself other than its destructive power. The Tunguska event is still considered officially unsolved. Woo, woo. That is cool. I mean, not that a fella died. Can you? Reindeer yeah, died. If reindeer, yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. Hopefully it was none of Santa's reindeer. R.I.P. reindeer. But, uh, wow. I think totally it was, uh, uh, it was Buck Rogers. From the 25th century? Yeah, he found a wormhole and right through there and then didn't realize the effect it would have on, uh, on poor, uh, Russia. Well, that's one of over, like, 70-odd theories that I read. You know, the thing with, with um, incidents like this, yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to result in some pretty fucking great crackpot uh, uh, ideas and theories. Well, we're a couple of crackpots, so this is perfect. For oh, this is why I'm so excited. The fireball itself had been estimated to have been 17 million degrees Celsius at its core as it flew across the sky. If it had been an asteroid, it might have been about 30 meters across and was moving at about 15 kilometers per second. Holy crackers. 17 million Celsius? My oven only goes to 15. So, I mean... 15 million? Yeah, that's a lot more than my oven. <laughs> I can imagine your oven as a molten lump on the floor. <laughs> no, it's, got, it's made out of titanium. Ah. Yeah, or vibranium, or I don't know. Whatever it is that won't melt at 15 million degrees Celsius. Some anium. There is an anium out there that, <laughs> yeah. Estimates of the energy output by the explosion put the event at somewhere near 15 megatons, which is 1,000 times more powerful than the bomb they called Little Boy that was dropped on Hiroshima by the United States 37 years later. That bomb helped to horrify the Japanese into surrendering bringing an end to World War II. So a thousand times stronger yeah. than Hiroshima. Man, so, so fortunate that this incident happened in such a remote, desolate area. Oh, my god! Because the damage it would have done in, in 1908. Were this event to occur over a densely populated major city, hundreds of thousands of people could die, causing billions of dollars of damage. Now, if you go to the website nuclearsecrecy.com slash nukemap, you can plop your city in and choose a yield of 15,000 kilotons. And then you can hit the button detonate, yeah. which is so cool. And then you can get a general idea of the devastation it would do. We did it here for Vancouver, and it looks pretty darn bad. We we might here in... It looks like we'd be right on the edge of, of the explosion. Yeah. But yeah, no, that would be quite devastating. So here's here's what would ensue. The fireball from the blast would have a radius of 2.85 kilometers with an air blast radius of almost 5 and 1.5 kilometers at 20 PSI over pressure. And Woo. this is a little nerdy. Yeah. Everything within 93.6 square kilometers would be destroyed with 100% fatalities. Holy shit. Even as far as 12 kilometers from the epicenter, buildings would collapse at 5 PSI over pressure killing many and injuring almost everyone within 445 square kilometers. Good God, that is substantial. As far out as 30 kilometers from the epicenter, where we are, for 2,900 square kilometers, windows facing the blast would shatter inward and those facing away would break as the air made its way back, filling the vacuum. Many people would be blinded by shards of flying glass as they watched the spectacle from their windows just as witnessed in our episode 6 on the Halifax explosion. That's why I always have my back towards windows. Great. Yep, I'm ready. Just in I'm case ready. of a nuclear blast. Yep, I'm ready. Back of my head will be pretty damaged, but eh, whatever. If, for example, the blast was centered in Vancouver, the entire city would be leveled. North and West Vancouver, Richmond and Burnaby would incur catastrophic damage. And windows would shatter as far away as Gibson's on the Sunshine Coast, 
Point Roberts, USA, Maple Ridge, Langley, and White Rock. Oddly, though, housing prices in Vancouver would only increase. <laughs> That's a terrible joke to make at that time, but I 100% agree with you. <laughs> For those who don't get like housing in Vancouver is ridiculous. We might do an episode on the money laundering at some point oh, once yeah. they figure that crap out. Yeah. As the Tunguska event was not a concentrated nuclear bomb, the radiation information on the NuclearSecrecy.com site should be ignored for the most part. Although, as mentioned above, there has been some radiation measured at the site. We'll drop a link to the Nuclear Secrecy website in our show notes. It's pretty cool to Yeah, yeah it was a really cool around. looking site. Yeah. I want to go blow everything up just to see. <laughs> well, you can yeah. if you want to. Yeah, and then push the detonate button. How the cool. big red detonate button. <laughs> oh, cool. Brilliant. Well done. Very intelligent. Yeah. The Tunguska event is also considered to be the loudest sounds ever heard by human ears. Holy shit. The pain threshold of the human ear is between 120 and 130 decibels. Some rock concerts can go as high as 145. The tinnitus I suffer from, commonly called ringing in the ears, is partially as a result of standing in front of concert speakers without ear protection. Mike. Yeah, so hearing loss. It was worth it. Because dumb. It was worth it to hear Megadeth that loud. <laughs> it was ministry. Eh, potato, potato. The Tunguska event was apparently louder than even the 1883 eruption of Krakatoa, which at 180 decibels could be heard in Australia over 3,000 kilometers away. Oh, good God, 180 decibels. Yes. Oh, man. It is estimated that the blast at Tunguska rang out at an eardrum bursting 300 to 315 decibels. Oh, my God. Yeah, you're a sound guy, so yeah. you know the significance of that number. It, it's really hard to even just process or fathom, yeah. uh, because uh, as you experienced at about 145 at a concert, that's loud. And that it hurts. hurts. It hurts, yeah. yeah that hurts. Uh, recent, well, one of the last festivals I shot, thankfully I had an earplugs, but I was... Uh, standing right in front of one of those speakers shooting it, it was so loud when the bass hit my shirt was like vibrating like a yeah. fan was hitting it so 300 decibels yeah you, you i'm sure it would knock you out oh totally i was able to dig up a number of eyewitness accounts of the event on a russian site dedicated to the tunguska event which is updated as recently as April of this year oh. 2019 stating that scientists are still learning about the event and from the newspaper Voice of Tomsk, dated July 15th, 1908. And this is roughly translated. You don't speak fluent? I'm not fluent Russian, mm. no. Oh, I thought you were. An earthquake occurred in Kansk, Yenisei province on June 30th in the morning. An underground rumble followed. Doors, windows, and lamps swayed. A hum was heard as from a distant cannon shot. After five to seven minutes... A second boom followed, stronger than the first, accompanied by the same rumble. A minute later, another boom, but weaker than the first two. For some time, rumors were spreading around the city that one large meteorite had fallen near the village of Delia, some miles from the Tunguska epicenter, and that many saw it when it was airborne. Many similar stories circulated. According to the stories of the peasants from Kansk, to the north, 70 miles in Ustyanovo, Volost, there was also a tremor of the soil accompanied by a roar. Oh, no, not a tremor of the soil. A tremor of the soil. Oh, man. Just terrible. I hate it when my soil tremors. Yeah, and, and I mean, 1908, uh, you know, so I know there's only theories, uh, as it's still, there's no conclusive determination as to what happened. Uh, I but you gotta think like in in the most remote place on the planet, nineteen oh eight scientists in a communist regime. Like there's not it's not it like wasn't communist yet. But okay, almost. well, but it's still a very very uh, difficult place to try to get to. Yeah. So I mean, you couldn't. It's not like you could just like now. It would probably be uh, resolved, or, or there would be an answer to it. But back then. Uh, it's just it's a very difficult thing to 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 source out and figure out, and you yep. know, then you a hundred and however many years later, like it's not going to be as much evidence. So uh, I get that it's there's still question marks as to what happened, but my God, yeah, we'll get into the reasons why it took so long to investigate. Too, yeah, yeah, but, yeah, but you're right on the money about politics and remoteness and all yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. 
Another paper said the first three booms were followed by another ten booms like aftershocks. A third paper reported that at 7.20 a.m., railway workers reported that a fiery body shaped like a log, trailing dark smoke, flew overhead, and when it disappeared from sight, there was a flash. A strong noise was heard under the railway that rolled like thunder. God, a fiery log. (laughs) Oh, someone's been eating tacos. Maybe there's a... Some eyewitnesses called the thing a flying star. Mm, Pretty. On the psi.edu, or Planetary Science Institute, website, a man who was 60 kilometers away described what he experienced. I was sitting on the porch of the house at the trading station looking north. Suddenly, the sky was split in two, and high above the forest, the whole northern part of the sky appeared to be covered with fire. I felt a great heat, as if my shirt had caught fire, At that moment, there was a bang in the sky and a mighty crash. I was thrown 20 feet from the porch and lost consciousness for a moment. The crash was followed by a noise like stones falling from the sky or guns firing. The earth trembled. At the moment when the sky opened, a hot wind, as if from a cannon, blew past the huts from the north. It damaged the onion plants. Later we found that many panes in the windows had been blown out and the iron hasp in the barn door had been broken. Am I wrong for thinking that would be kind of neat to experience? Well, the getting knocked out part probably wouldn't be so neat. Well, as long as there's no long-term damage, like that would be a pretty, like to yeah. have experienced something like that, and be like, yeah, yeah, I was there. I lived through it. I'm okay. 20, 20 feet. Yep. 20 feet, flew 20 feet. And, and look at me now. Look at me now. Yeah. But those darn onion plants were damaged. <laughs> Story of my life, Mike. The beats. Story of my life. We are trying to make something from the beats. No borscht for you. Exactly. From the same website, a second witness said, I saw the sky in the north open to the ground and fire poured out. The fire was brighter than the sun. We were terrified, but the sky closed again, and immediately afterward, bangs like gunshots were heard. We thought stones were falling. I ran with my head down and covered because I was afraid stones may fall on it. Hmm. Interesting. I guess that's just the shock wave and probably bouncing off echoes and mountains and, yeah. and stuff. Yeah. Wow. God, how terrifying, though, eh? As the area was so remote and the nation was rife with political issues, it was 19 years before a scientific team could make it to the epicenter of the event. And they left the day it happened. <laughs> it just took them 19 no, years actually, to get there. They did not. <laughs> Uh, the team of researchers led by Leonid Kulik, and someone who's named Leonid is going to be interested in meteors because there's the Leonid meteor shower. Oh. Well, anyway, Kulik was a veteran of World War I and the chief curator for the meteorite collection of the St. Petersburg Museum, and he tried to reach the site in 1921 with his group, but they failed. They did manage to reach the epicenter in 1927. On both expeditions, the team collected many eyewitness reports existent today. Mm-hmm. From an article on the Tunguska event on the NASA website, Don Yeomans, manager of the Near-Earth Object Office at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, stated that the indigenous Ivanks and Yakuts, who lived in the area, were afraid to speak with Kulik's team at first. They believed that some supernatural power, a god or angry sorcerer, had caused the event to remind them that they should live well. Yep, no, that's what it was. Some accounts actually exist saying that two full months before the explosion, rumors of the approaching end of the world began to spread among the local tribe people. Ooh. Traveling shaman were going around warning people of an imminent cataclysm. Interesting. Isn't it, though? Yeah, yeah. Uh, some of the shepherds began to move their herds from Tunguska toward the Lena River to get out of the way. Wow. Uh, that is pretty fascinating. Right? Uh, you know, oddly timed for sure. On April 13th, 1927, Kulik and his team discovered a massive area with rotting logs blown down and scorched like so many sticks, uprooted and pointed away from the source of the blast. This type of blast pattern was later replicated during atomic bomb testing, and we did see it actually in Mount St. Helens, too. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah that was 
I remember that. Have you ever been down there to the Mount St. Helens site? I would so love to. But I I remember that happening. I was probably eight or so, and my dad worked on a lumber mill. I remember him bringing home, like, uh, masks in case the ash got us over here and stuff. It it never did, but it was, yeah, it's crazy. Carol and I went, actually, to the uh, monument there with the viewing site. And you have to drive like 20 miles to get into the to the viewing site. Yeah. And you see all the area that was affected by the volcanic blast. It's yeah. pretty crazy. I'd love to check that out. Yeah, you got to go on a sunny day, though, because clouds equal no looking at the mountain. Clouds. Kind of bane of my existence. Oddly, as Kulik's group made their way to the center of the area, they found the trees directly below the explosion still standing straight. The trees were stripped of bark and branches, looking a lot like telephone poles with no wires attached. The team was unable to find a major crater at the site, but there were what the team thought were small craters a few meters wide and a few meters deep across the area near the center of the blast. They didn't have the means to excavate at the time. These pits were later found to be natural formations caused by the melting and refreezing of permafrost. So no craters at all. Yeah, and see, like, that's where uh, they didn't have the tools to, to properly excavate. And so it's it's back, like, such a long time ago and so remote. They There wasn't a – pretty much I get the sense that they kind of arrived there and looked around. They took their, like, survey instruments. And, yeah, you know, what they can carry and look around and, and go their, like – their camera with the, with the canvas over it and the big <laughs> flashbang. <laughs> Poof. <laughs> Ansel Adams was there with them taking. <laughs> they probably would have gotten some good pictures. They would have with, with him, yeah. Yeah. I trust that they were probably like the, the height of uh, science at the time. Like they were yeah. very, very good scientists, but yeah. just limited in what they could what they could do research. Yeah, there was no such thing as atomic science at the time, no. really. No. It was all just sort of a pipe dream. Yep. The pattern of the blast looked like it had not hit directly, but had spread out like a big fan or the wings of a butterfly. That's pretty. Yeah. Kulik was never able to find any evidence of a meteorite from the event, and his explanation was that the swampy, boggy area might have swallowed the evidence which now lay buried. Sure. After the break, we'll explore some of the theories, even the wackier ones, about what people believe caused the explosion. Oh, it's going to get good. Scott's already talked about one. I'm drooling. So we boiled the list of 75 plus theories down to around 10 or so, uh, well, 10 that I've written, but I'm sure Scott has some more input on this. We'll work backwards from the least likely causes for the event, and some of these are pretty out there. Oh, man. So one that I didn't write down, but I I feel like I neglected to mention, was people felt that the Russians had actually uh, already tested a nuclear bomb. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sure. 37 years prior to the detonation at Hiroshima. Yeah. I'm going to go with uh, scratch that one off the list. Yeah. No. So that's probably why I didn't write it down. Yeah, yeah. It's just one that... But I mean, I, I can absolutely understand why people think that, but I don't think that that would have been able to sit idle. World Wars One and Two had yet to happen. Yeah. Russia would have nuked Germany. Yeah. It's a dumb thing. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, this one, number 10, is actually kind of one of my favorite theories. I'm reading it, and I'm loving it. Nikola Tesla's death ray. Yes! Yes! Oh, There is evidence from what remains of Nikola Tesla's writings that references the use of his wireless power transmission technology, which he was focused on perfecting throughout the first decade of the 1900s, as a directed energy weapon. Yep. Yep, and, and all, like he really had a grudge against uh, Siberia. Okay. No, I'm making that up. In 1907, the French ship Aina exploded in dry dock under mysterious circumstances. Oh. Tesla surmised this could have been due to the testing of a directed energy weapon. He claimed he could project his wave of energy to any point on Earth if he desired to do so. He said this could be done very accurately, stating... The spot at which the desired effect is to be produced can be calculated very closely, assuming the accepted terrestrial measurements to be correct. Okay, go Tesla. Yeah, he was an interesting cat. Yeah, 
A, a lot of, uh, of uh, geniuses are a little bonkers. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. And I'm not a genius, and I'm full bonkers. <laughs> In April of 1908... Tesla wrote about this kind of weapon being the, quote, future of warfare, hmm. and said, this is not a dream. Even now, wireless power plants could be constructed by which any region of the globe might be rendered uninhabitable without subjecting the population of other parts to serious danger or inconvenience. Well, that's, um, I mean, that's... Scary. Scary, but, but also how very, how very nice of you to not, like, damage the people? Well, just every everywhere they live. Well, no, he says uh, without subjecting the population of other parts to serious danger. Or oh, oh! So he would eh, okay. You'd vaporize everybody yeah. there. Yeah, you got to do what you got to do. The Tunguska event took place two and a half months after he wrote this. Mm. In 1915, Tesla alludes to having tested such a device and again wrote about its accuracy. It is perfectly practical to transmit electrical energy without wires and produce destructive effects at a distance. I have already constructed a wireless transmitter which makes this possible, but when unavoidable, it may be used to destroy property and life. The art is already so far developed that the great destructive effects can be produced at any point on the globe defined beforehand with great accuracy. <sighs> Ooh, he seems so sure that he's, he's got this. Yeah. See, my my hang up with something like that though is uh, that's a pretty revolutionary technology now. So back then, if you if you create that, you're going to try to uh, sell. You're going to want to make some loot off of. But some a lot of his stuff was destroyed. Remember, a lot of his uh, his work and and findings were destroyed. <sighs> Maybe Tesla was talking about uh, Tunguska in this particular uh, conversation. I mean, you would, yeah, you would target a, a very remote yeah. area to do this test. Maybe he used this barely populated region to test his death ray. I think this is absolutely not possible, but anytime death ray is an option, that's my guess got my vote. I say it's not probable, but I'm not going to say it's not possible. You are a ballsy man. I am a ballsy man. Death ray. You had me at death ray, Nikola Tesla. So that's that's my favorite one. So yes. that's number 10. Number 9 is also kind of interesting. So aliens made a boo-boo with a laser beam. <laughs> well, you know, it, sure. In 1964, a couple of Russian science writers came up with an interesting hypothesis. The Tunguska event had been caused by highly advanced aliens 11 light years away, sending a communication signal from a massive planet in the 61 Cygni system. Yep, that's a great system. Been there a few times. Been there a few times. Yeah. This was a response to the massive 1883 eruption of Krakatoa that disrupted our ionosphere and generated an accidental radio signal that shot towards 61 Cygni. Uh-oh. The little green folks received our message and sent one back we were not prepared to receive, thus frying Tunguska. Seems, seems rational. As light is easier to focus than radio waves, laser could be a very effective means of interstellar communication. A few articles I read said that the entire Encyclopedia Britannica could be transmitted in seconds. Sure. But the cost to power this type of laser is currently prohibitive, but who's to say E.T. hasn't figured it out? It's true, it's true. I, they're far more advanced, and I would imagine their civilization have a much better economy. <laughs> and, uh... Anything alien as well, I'm like, hmm, yes. Interesting. Yes. Well, there's more about the alien theory next. There better be. So, number eight, UFO crash. Yes! Uh, in keeping with the extraterrestrial theories, perhaps there's a simpler explanation. Some reports are that the thing changed course twice in its observed flight. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Okay, all right. Alien craft may also explain the tube or pipe-like shape that some witnesses recalled. Yep, the uh, brown log. Yeah, the fiery log. The fiery log, yeah. Perhaps an ET ship made a navigational mistake, or worse yet, 
had a catastrophic malfunction of their craft over Siberia, exploding into a billion tiny fragments and showering the area with undiscovered elements and alien DNA. Mm, okay, I'm, I'm sold. Oddly, there have been some biological consequences to the vegetation in the immediate area oh. of the event. Oh, that's fascinating. Okay, what were they? There is evidence of accelerated growth of the trees and other flora in the region taking place almost immediately after the event, as far away as 25 kilometers from the epicenter. Well, that is interesting. Also... Even more telling is one Russian scientist's 2004 paper noting genetic mutations that have been evident in some trees in the area as well as the insect population. Ooh, wow. Perhaps alien DNA has infiltrated the life forms in the area, kind of like John Carpenter's The Thing, and it's just a matter of time before the local ant population mutates into a race of super beings <laughs> who will force us to do their bidding. It's also like in Annihilation, but uh, The Thing is one of my favorite movies ever, so I'm going with that. Yes, yes, it's going to happen. Ants are going to super mutate. Yep. And super just, intelligent ants. We just got we've got to hand over all of our technology to the ants because they have one more uh, appendage on each side than us. Well, and, and the amount uh, of stuff they can lift. Yeah, like and, imagine if they, and were they like have giant. the bite, the bitey things. Oh my god, they're men. I will, I will not even challenge. I will hand over. You, you can have it all, ants. Here you go, you can, ants. If they if they come to my house, would they have rifles? If they come to my house, I'd be like. Nope. Sure. What do you want? They TV? would have little ant rifles. Yeah. I mean, you want the TV? What do you want? You want my cameras? Just, just tell me. It's yours. What do you want? Yeah. Please be friendly. I wonder how they would be at art. Like, what? I wonder what kind of art they would. I don't know. It's interesting. Well, I was thinking. Well, I don't know why it popped into my head, but ant pornography. Well, I know why that popped into your head. Because <laughs> it's pretty erotic. Because I'm a dirty man. Because it's hot. Ant pornography. Antography. So there you go. That that. That could happen if it was a UFO crash. Could you imagine being those poor aliens? You're like, like there. It's like, we're, what's your destiny? Oh, we're gonna go. We're gonna go try to explore Earth, and you make that trip, and you're all like, yeah, we made it. It's Earth. Oh shit, I've lost control. <laughs> la, la. Like you made you like you, you were this close. Yeah, you were this close to victory, and then kaboom. Yeah, you crashed and exploded a forest. Number seven is an, is a bit weird. Geometeors and ball lightning. I've heard of ball lightning, not geometeors. On the fossilhunters.xyz website, they make claims that in 1991, a Russian scientist stated, quote, he believes that the explosion was caused by a strong coupling between some unknown subterranean and atmospheric processes. Mm. This coupling formed meteor-like luminous objects, but of terrestrial origin. For want of a better word, he calls these objects geophysical meteors or geometeors. A geometeor resembles a high-speed ball lightning. Similar events occur in association with earthquakes, earthquake lights, and in association with a thunderstorm, ball lightning, mm -hmm. he sure, says. Yeah. Yeah. The scientist went on claiming that Tunguska was over a massive volcanic crater. He also said, quote, this rare combination of large-scale geophysical and meteorological disturbances manifested itself as follows. First, there was luminous activity in the atmosphere in southern Siberia, which was like falling meteors. At about the same time, a swarm of shallow earthquakes started, which were accompanied by brontides, thunder-like sounds of short duration, believed to be of seismic origin. Then, at the vent of the crater, there was a large geometeor explosion. He goes on to say that science is still unable to recreate this phenomena, but will one day catch up to nature. And I think this guy is full of crap. Brontides. 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 I didn't hear so anything like, past that. I'm just trying to brontide. <laughs> right? I, so what he's saying is that it wasn't just one event. It was like three or four different things occurring all at once. The the culmination of, th of three or more events. Yeah. Yeah. Which, mm. which mm. you know. Mm-hmm. Thanks, buddy. Mm -hmm. I mean, at least it sounds like he's applying some science to this, but... Uh... But where there's science, there's also science fiction. Wow, you should... there's a shirt. There are others who feel the geometeors were man-made. They feel that the government, aware of an approaching comet, created a massive underground weapon reaching deep into the Earth, 
much like today's Patriot missiles meant to shoot down an incoming threat. <laughs> just, okay. The remains of the weapon were buried deep underground afterward, and a massive conspiracy of silence has prevented the truth from coming out for over a century. Oh my god, that's so fantastical. Uh, like, so a few things would have to happen. Right. Uh, a, uh, the, we're giving, first we're giving Russia, Russia's government in remote Siberia in 1908, way more credit yes. than, than they probably deserve. So they would have had to have known this thing was coming yeah. a long time ago to build such a device underground. Mm-hmm. Um, which, like, whew, okay, there's a lot of a lot of holes in that theory. It, it, or they had just happened to build it there. Yeah. And and that's where this event happened. And they're like, sweet Christ, we were, wow, I or, told you this is the place to build it. I told you, Smitty. Or, Scott, maybe they're built everywhere. <gasps> oh, my God. Maybe they're just oh. only there and they bring it out when they need it. Like, that's pretty pretty heavy. I'm going to have to think on that. Well, let's go on to number six, because that one is rather silly. Bonkers. Number six is a rogue ball of plasma was expelled from the sun and created the event. Wow. We've seen the damage that simple sunspots and storms can cause as far as communication outages, etc. Yep. Having worked for a cable company, we can assure you those things are very real. Absolutely. Every once in a while, a group of TV channels on a particular frequency are affected by these storms on the sun. <laughs> this could have been a coronal mass ejection. Whoa. It's a scientific thing. <laughs> Whoa. Of plasma from a solar flare that slammed into our atmosphere from our own sun and exploded high above the Siberian landscape. Coronal uh, the electromagnetic charge that accompanies such a plasmoid may have also accounted for the hours-long electrical storm that followed the event. Okay. In 1908, scientists still had a lot to learn about this phenomenon and were years away from being able to predict such a thing. Yeah, but I mean, kudos for the theory. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. That's an interesting yeah, one. It is, it is. Now let's get into some math. Oh, I'll, I'll be back in a few minutes. Exactly. Okay. Uh, number five is mirror matter. Mm-hmm. Sure. Not to be confused with antimatter. No. Nope. Because that's where people will go. Not, And it's not that mirrors matter? No. Okay. Well, it actually does mirror matter. So bear with me. Whoa. Some physicists believe in the existence of a substance called mirror matter and that this could explain events like Tunguska. Ooh. From an article on high-energy physics phenomenology from Australia and posted on the Cornell University website. Oh, well, that's reputable. Mirror matter is predicted to exist if parity, i.e. left-right symmetry, is a symmetry of nature. Remarkably, mirror matter is capable of simply explaining a large number of contemporary puzzles in astrophysics and particle physics, including events like Tunguska. That's why I hated school. I did, that, that's confusing. Well, it made sense to me. This led me to an article uh, with so many formulas in it that it hurt my pea-sized brain, and I almost started to cry. <laughs> the summary at the beginning was the easiest part that I had to read. <laughs> it said, in this paper, we examine the possibility that the 1908 Tunguska explosion in Siberia was the result of the collision of mirror matter space body with the Earth. We point out that... If this catastrophic event and many other similar smaller events are manifestations of the mirror world, then these impact sites should be a good place to start digging for mirror matter. Mirror matter could potentially be extracted and purified using a centrifuge and have many useful industrial applications. Oh my so are they saying like are they saying different dimensions and matter from mirroring dimensions? That's what it seems like. But it's like a type of matter that exists counter to the matter that we see. But it's not antimatter. It's dark. It, some people will call it dark matter. Dark matter. All right. Wow. Yeah, so I'm going to leave the mirror matter hypothesis to the eggheads. But you know what? Like, I don't know. I, I don't understand that enough to say that is wrong. 
Sure. Yeah, right? sure. I guess that's uh, sure. Mirror matter, totally. And the Be- next people ask me about, it, I'm going to go oh, mirror matter. And the next one is pretty much the same. And this is antimatter, which we mentioned already. Okay. Uh, this has been a popular explanation of what caused the Tunguska event. Uh, it goes that a particle of antimatter somehow made it into Earth's matter-filled atmosphere far enough to go boom and flatten 2,000 square miles of the forest. <laughs> like the mirror matter idea, nerds with bigger brains than I have spent many thought cycles debunking this theory with more mathematical theorems that I don't remotely understand. Oh, I will most likely fall into a deep sleep I won't ever wake up from if we talk about antimatter any further. I anti-care about antimatter. So, I don't know. I don't think it was antimatter because antimatter, the second that it comes into contact with matter, it will explode. Yep. So... It wouldn't be able to it, make it down. No, it wouldn't the, have yeah. made it into the atmosphere yeah. at all. Yeah. It, it's not possible. No. No. Here's a weird one. Yes! Number three. <laughs> miniature black hole. <laughs> They're pretty adorable. Little, if, you, if you've ever seen one. You think you can catch one in Pokemon. Yeah, they're pretty. <laughs> I'm trying. Yeah, You man. need an Ultra Ball for it, though. Yeah, no, and a boy, do I. In 1973, <gasps> two... Th- well, yes. Two physicists posited that the Tunguska event could have been caused by a tiny black hole slamming into the Earth. Sure. Black holes are known to have a crazy amount of mass, and according to Rational Wiki, this particular black hole would have, quote, been somewhere in the region of 10 to the 17th power tons, which is about the same mass as Saturn's moon Prometheus. So, that's friggin' heavy. Yeah. Okay. The major problem with this idea is that there's no exit wound. All our true crime friends will know that a fast-moving projectile, a bullet for example, either ends up embedded inside the victim, which in this case is impossible as the earth would have been fully sucked into the hole by now, or it exits, leaving another larger hole. If this happened, there would be a matching hole somewhere on the earth's surface. And don't give me the quackery about it's in the ocean somewhere. The black hole is in the ocean somewhere? You think people are... The hole. Oh, the the, the results. Exit, the yeah, exit, the exit, the exit wound. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, it doesn't it doesn't matter because the Earth is flat anyway. Quack quack. <laughs> Number two, and this is actually a pretty popular theory, uh, but I don't believe it for a second. Actually, oh. so that's why I don't give it a lot of time. Oh, do tell then. Exploding asteroid. Okay, why don't you give it time? Asteroids are made of iron and other solid materials that would have definitely survived the explosion leaving traces everywhere embedded in the earth nearby. There would have actually been craters. Yes. But again, took them so long to get there. Could things have just overgrown? Could have. Like the craters don't necessarily always have to be uh, miles in, in diameter. But there would be evidence of it. You would think that multiple craters, no matter the size, would well, be... They. I mean, the trees were still laying there you know, 19 years later. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. So, yeah. unless some really diligent rock hounds were out there collecting all the <laughs> meteor parts. I know. Hundreds no. of thousands of meteor parts that were everywhere. No, I, I highly doubt it. Although, it, exploding asteroid is far more fucking rational than uh, uh, dark matter, or mirror matter. Yeah. Um, there may be some, I read in one place that someone said that they found what they believe to be matter from this event in Ant- in Antarctica, but oh, how do they prove that? Like, yeah. you know, I, how do you, yeah. yeah, yeah. Again, eggheads, please prove this to us. Eggheads have a good conversation <laughs> with me. Leave me an email that I'll promptly delete because <laughs> I probably won't understand what you're saying and we won't do a follow-up show. Eggheads at gmail.com. Yeah, pretty much. Here's the number one theory that yeah. I kind of like. Yeah, okay. A comet entered the Earth's atmosphere and exploded. Yep. This is probably the best explanation I've heard. Comet Enki orbits every 3.3 years and would have been passing around the summer of 1908. A massive chunk of the comet composed mainly of dust and ice, 
possibly entered the atmosphere moving at that 15 kilometers per second, overheated, and went boom over the Earth's surface, creating a fireball and a shockwave, but no crater. Yep. Uh, the fact that it was ice would explain the lack of fragments. Ice melts or perhaps was even vaporized by the explosion and just absorbed by the Earth. Yeah, I, I, sounds absolutely rational. Right? Yes. Isn't that bizarre? Yes. But why does Tunguska still generate interest 111 years later? Well, all these possibilities I gave are still just that, possibilities. Yeah, well, anytime there's something uh, unsolved, uh, it's going to generate some wackadoo ideas. <laughs> That's right. And we're all about wackadoo ideas uh, when we're not talking oh, yeah, keep about murder. Yeah, keep them coming. Bring on the wackadoo. Yeah, we want to do some more wackadoo. Yeah. Also, isn't mankind fascinated with a good apocalypse? <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's this little book called the Bible. Right? Yeah, no, it's... it's uh, it, so how many shows are based off of an apocalypse? Yeah, you know, like zombie and, movies. Yeah, and surviving through yeah. it and stuff. It's I'm, I love those stories. Sometimes, now, don't judge me, sometimes I'm fascinated about an apocalypse. Sure. Simply for the fact that it's like... Oh, phew, no more responsibility. I don't have to pay bills. I don't have to worry about work. All I got to do is survive. I don't think That's about it, it. that. That's <laughs> it. Survive. That's all. I've just got to survive. You have a very romantic idea of apocalypse. <laughs> well, I don't think it's going to be like flowers and unicorns, but like it's like. You don't have to go to work. All I got to do is forage. I don't have to worry about bills. Woo! I think foraging would actually be harder than going to. Uh... <laughs> don't, don't shit on my. Oh, well. Apocalypse Parade, Mike. Uh, there's been many books and movies written about, like, specifically about an event like this, like an a Earth impact. Yep. Armageddon, deep impact, uh, <laughs> made about the events like the one we've been describing tonight. That's a great documentary. Uh, Carol hated deep impact and likes to call it deeply impacted bowels. <laughs> Yeah. Who hasn't had thoughts that Earth might wander unknowingly into the path of some as-yet-discovered giant asteroid or comet and be smashed lifeless by a big dumb rock? Yeah, it's, it. you know, it is a plausible totally. event. Likely negatory. Plausible? Pro probability, again, probability versus possibility. And if we're looking at the uh, life of, an, of a planet, mm -hmm. sure, it might happen at some point way, way down the road. But, yeah, uh, major uh, apocalyptic impacts have happened before, yes. like Ask the Dinosaurs. Yep, I did, and they agree. <laughs> yeah, they're not here yeah. to they're ask. They're like, oh, it wasn't fun. <laughs> it was, now I'm a bird. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm a raptor. <laughs> the largest impact known to mankind happened over 2 billion years ago. It's the Vredefort Crater in South Africa, also called the Vredefort Dome. It was initially 300 kilometers across after a mountain-sized meteorite smashed into the Earth. Holy jeez. It's huge. Wow. The second largest impact happened 1.8 billion years ago right here in Canada and left a 130-kilometer-wide crater in what's now the Sudbury region of Ontario. Mm, that explains a lot about Sudbury. I, I like Sudbury. Yeah, yeah. But I, I just I don't know anything about it. I just thought that would You're be funny. You're being yeah. funny. Yeah, yeah. Sudbury. <laughs> and if you really want to know what a lifetime worth of craters look like, take a peek at the moon through a telescope. I'm doing that right now. She has no vegetation or water to cover her scars. But lots of, yeah, lots of acne scars. It's terrible. For, for the moon, yeah. We send some proactive up there. Exactly. People probably picked on her in her teens. Ah, God. The struggle is real. It'll happen again someday, but who knows when. Impacts with the power of those like seen at Tunguska happen only every 300 years. We have nothing to worry about, or do we? Dun, dun, dun. I had a, my own personal experience with a fireball. What? Yeah, my friend Mike Zink and I, he's passed away, God rest his soul. Oh, he and I were driving to his parents' place in the late 80s, and we heard this thing before we saw it. And we were driving in his car, and he had the sunroof out of his car, and I remember seeing it through the sunroof first. I looked up, and there was this blue-green big thing just rumbling what? through the sky. And what it was, it was actually an asteroid that, or, or a meteorite at that time that struck somewhere in Quebec. Wow. Yeah. So we were in Nova For Scotia, real? and we saw, it, we saw it pass over our heads. 
it was pretty fascinating. Wow, I would imagine. Yeah, we actually, like, he just pulled the car over and we just got out and watched it go. How fast was it going? Was it, like, pretty slow? Uh, it looked like it was moving slow, but it was moving, it was probably going, like, 15 kilometers per yeah, second. Yeah, but, but that high up, it looks just like planes when they're, yeah. when you watch a plane go over it, it looks slow, but it's not. But you could hear it. Wow. You could hear this. Like, you could hear the rumbling of yeah. it. Holy shit, that yeah. would be crazy. It was very bonkers. Wow. Yeah. And you know you can you can Google uh, there's impacts every year yeah. like this, yeah. and uh, there was a bunch that were a large one that was caught in Russia again. Yeah, I remember this one very yeah. recently that yeah. blew out a bunch of windows and yeah. all that kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah, I remember so, that one. Yeah. So welcome back, buddy. Woo! Thanks, thanks. It is really good to be back. Yeah, yeah. It feels really good to be back yeah. in my chair. Very, very good. Yeah. Well, that's it for this week's case. That was pretty, that was a good one. What a good one to come back to. That was fun. Right? Yeah. I needed a palate cleanser after talking to your poor wife about what she'd experienced. uh, Yeah, I haven't heard, I haven't listened to that episode yet. I'm going to probably do it on my drive to work tonight. But yeah, yeah, I heard she cried. Yeah. Yeah, so she and Carol did a bang up job. Someone referred to them very rudely in a review as interns. You should, your interns didn't do a very good job. Oh my God. You know God, what? These are our that? wives. Jesus. These, these were our wives that were doing it. What do you think this show is? Do you think like we do it in a big studio and we have like people getting us coffee and shit like that? That's uh, ridiculous. Yeah. No, that doesn't happen. It's me yeah. recording it. Yep. Scott comes over. I write, edit, record. Scott comes over. We tell a story. We sit here and talk about the story. And then he goes home, I edit the thing, and we put it out for you every Monday. Yep. That's it. Yep. That's it. There's no interns. No, we don't have assistants. No. There's nobody no. Uh, fanning us and feeding us grapes no, while we're recording. There's no one out there running around be. doing shit for us. No. No. It is us that do it. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, eh, well, again, what it's... The internet, man. Uh, people are going to hate everything, you know? Like, it doesn't... Uh, it sucks, because I thought they did a great job. It sucks that a person disagrees. I thought they did great. For not being people who uh, sat there and were like, this Have is something I want this. to do yeah. with my life, or this is something yeah. I mean, I'm going to start... Just be... Let's spur the moment. Like, sure, I'll do it. I needed help, and they offered. Yeah, and I thought they did, considering that. Consider, even if... It wasn't just something that last minute. They did great. Because Scott left me alone. I did. And I wanted to test Mike's abandonment issues. <laughs> I, for a moment there, I was feeling it. Yeah. Well, but sorry. But it's, it's all yeah, good. I had, I had to... I had to jump at an, a last-minute opportunity. And, I, and I'm uh, glad you did. Cause and it's, it's, work, and yeah. it's working out great now. Yeah. It's working out great now. So it's... Uh, so you're back with the show regularly. I'm back. I'm back and, nice. and uh, excited about New Orleans. Me too. Yeah. So before we go, we want to give some shout-outs to our Patreon patrons. Uh, this week's good eggs are Michelle Way. Oh, hey, Michelle Way. She's from way far away, I think. <laughs> yep, yep, way uh, oh, New Brunswick. New Brunswick, yeah. Oh, okay. Way, it's way out there. There you it's go. It's way out there. And what does she do in New Brunswick, Scott? Oh, she's a button designer. Oh, she designs buttons. Yeah, she designs buttons. Like the ones that advertise things or the ones that no, hold no. my pants no, up? No, yeah, the ones that hold your pants up. People don't think about how much detail goes into that design, how much thought and how much effort goes into it. There are physics there at work. Long hours. Yeah. Long hours. You know, you don't want to keep replicating the same design, but yet you do have to stick with the round so you're limited. You're limited to well, what I've you can. I've seen them octagonal and. Yeah, but we all know what happened to those designers. Yeah, fair yeah, fair. yeah. They didn't. They didn't last in the industry long, you know. And so, uh, right. yeah, she's. I'm really, really excited about uh, Michelle Way's work. She's a great, great button designer. Tina Coughlin. Yep. I don't know where Tina's from. Uh, Tina is from. Um, oh God, it's on the tip of my tongue. I, I've been there a few times. Uh, oh, Taiwan. You've been to Taiwan? No, I've never been to Taiwan. No. no. What does she do in Taiwan? <laughs> she teaches Muay Thai. That's Thailand. I, but that's, you could learn Muay Thai in Vancouver, Mike. Yeah, fair so enough. So don't, don't limit, don't limit Tina's uh, options. She's, but it is a Thai martial art. It is. Yeah. 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 And, and Thus Muay Thai. And she's great at it. You should see her arms, dude. Does she have amazing shins? Oh, oh my. 
She could knock a tree down like Jean-Claude Van Damme and kickboxer. Yeah, no, she she's tough as they come. She is tough as they come. Um, she used to train with GSP for a while. Oh, wow. GSP has been reported to say, I would never want to fight her. Be, would be my, I would lose. Speaking of Jean-Claude Van Damme, yeah. uh, did I ever tell you the story about watching Bloodsport with the uh, grandmaster of my martial arts style? No. So his name was uh, Daniel K. Pai, Dr. Daniel Pai, when he's passed name. away. But I was taking a Pai Lum, or Bai Lung, which is white dragon style Kung Fu. And I met, I got to meet this guy and hang out with him. We had a few drinks. It was interesting. But we're hammered watching Bloodsport. <laughs> yeah. And he looks at me and his English wasn't wasn't the best. Uh, and he just said to me, dancer, not Kung Fu. <laughs> it's true though. He was a dancer. Yeah. Ballerina. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, man. But yeah, I got private lessons that night from a drunken grandmaster of White Dragon Kung Fu. That is pretty, pretty great. Yeah. Pretty, the, pretty fun. There's gifts of Jean-Claude Van Damme dancing in the background in the movie Breakdance. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen that. So he was a dancer. Uh, we got a uh, a patron from Mount Pearl, Newfoundland, and his name is Patrick Keen. Oh, cool. Thank you, Patrick. I'm glad that somebody from Newfoundland is not offended by my shitty accent, as a, as apparently a couple were. Eh. Eh, but I don't mean any harm. We come in peace, and we love Newfoundland. I mean, I'm half Newfoundlander, I found out now. so I, I legit want to go there someday. Yeah, me I too. Really, really, I want to visit the East Coast. Uh, I would like to go back. Sheena Anderson from Victoria, B.C. Oh, local. We got Thank local. you, Sheena. Yeah, Sheena. Thank you. Jean Menzagian from uh, Salem, New Hampshire, and she's a new PM. Oh, wow. Thank you, Jean. Thanks, Jean. Wow, Salem. Any any place that's named Salem, I'm, I'm good with. Salem, Massachusetts is the spooky one, though, right? I, I was, think. That was Oregon. <laughs> there's, there's one there, too. This is one probably every every state. <laughs> Chantelle McClellan from Thompson, Manitoba. Mm-mm. It reminds me of the song Thompson Girl by the Tragically Hip. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Hey, thanks, Chantelle. Uh, Jessica Wink from Yellowhead County, Alberta, oh. out there on on uh, on the on the prairie sounds uh sounds uh remote well it is i think it's close to the klaus family area oh, where wow, okay. we did that yeah, episode yeah. while you oh. were away yeah it was a good episode christina cop from thornton colorado hey christina thank you jamie johnson from lethbridge alberta oh did do you know uh um no nope, that wasn't even gonna work i was gonna say trevor linden but that's uh He's from Medicine Hat. Yeah, exactly. So, but maybe you still you, the question still stands. Jamie, she probably do you, does. Do you know Trevor Linden? Jennifer Miller from Surrey, BC. <gasps> a local. A local. And interestingly, I did my DNA. So I did my father DNA and my family finder DNA because yep. I don't know who my father is. I actually have discovered. Now I know exactly who oh, it is. But wow, wow. anyway. Uh, Miller is one of the most popular surnames uh, in my DNA. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Yeah. maybe. And then the next are like Cohen and Greenberg and other interesting Ashkenazi names. So maybe you and Jennifer are related. Maybe. Mm -hmm. I found out I'm actually related to the husband of uh, a girl I know from uh, high school. (laughs) That's crazy. Yeah. I got to do do these one day. Yeah. Uh, Marth K.B., from Edinburgh, Scotland. Hey, Scotland. Oh, yeah, my whole It reminds land. me of my grandmother. He's away. You're away with the fairies. Yeah, I, I. Scotland is probably one of the top places I want to go. Yeah, I would love to. Well, because the word Scott. Well, I'm named after the country. Of course you were. Yeah, my brother got, like, named after all of, like, grandparents of James Gordon, Hemingway. Yeah. And I got the country, which I'm okay with. I don't think I'm named after anything. No? Well, my, my birth name was Christopher Jude, so I was named after the song Hey Jude. Oh, well, that's quite lovely. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Diane, my yeah. birth mom. She's yeah. awesome. I, I've met her. She's amazing. She's a great lady. Thanks so much to our patrons, past and present, for your pledges. Glad you stuck with us. We really appreciate your support of the show. If you want to help support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash darkpoutine or 
For one-time support, you can send us some donor money via PayPal at our email address, darkpoutinepodcast@gmail.com. And this week, we got donut money from Brandy Tuznard and Susan Nosworthy. Hey, thanks, Brandy and Susan. We and, appreciate everything. And I know Susan is from Australia. Oh, sweet. So she's a nice lady. Yeah, bedwetter. Bedwetter. Bedwetter, give me a water box. Water box. Nice lady. <laughs> you want to put some shrimps on the barbie? In my water box. Exactly. Oh, God, I'm a terrible person. Uh, if you don't already, it would mean a lot to us if you subscribe to the show. You can easily find us on iTunes, Podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or Spotify, or wherever else you get your on-demand yeah. audio. Check out our website, darkpoutine.com, for show notes and other cool stuff. I'm putting some pictures up there now with uh, if I come across them from uh, in my research oh, I did cool. last episode. Yeah, sweet. Please give us a follow on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Dark Poutine. Most importantly, tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. We've relied on it. And yes, all we been do. Great. Join us in our Facebook groups. You know the words. Uh, yeah, Yumber Yard, Barnyard, Craft Barn. Yeah, yeah. There's a. It's growing. It's bonkers. It's growing. But if you come, and you join, it is not a true crime community. Don't get that in your head. Yep. This is a community where people are there to have fun. So don't be an a-hole, because if you're an a-hole, you go out on a rail. Yeah, every once in a while somebody somebody joins in expecting it to be, like, nothing but case discussions and whatnot. Feel free, but no, Feel, I you mean... You can talk we, about that if you like. It's really just a community of like-minded people who, who uh, like to talk and, and share and laugh and, and say positive things. So it's, it's great if you, if you want to participate. If you're looking for, like, true crime discussion, yeah, I don't know, maybe find somewhere else. Yeah, exactly. We we're there to make friends, and we have made a literally, lot of, lot yeah. of friends. I, yeah, literally. That's that's exactly I think uh, the best description. It's there to for people to make friends, and, and people have. Yeah, Rel- all relationships have been built through there. Oddly, oh god, yeah. it's horrible. Yeah, yeah. We yeah. have a dating site essentially. <laughs> uh, it's called Poutiner. <laughs> I don't know how well that would do. Yeah, I don't know. The only qu- well, maybe it should be called Dark Poontang. <laughs> oh, shit. Great time to end. Yeah. <laughs> so that's it for this week. Don't forget, until next week, be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye-bye, everybody. Chowder. <laughs>